In this episode, I'm once again joined by Dean Slater, meditation teacher and best-selling author of books such as Cinema Nirvana, Enlightenment Lessons from the Movies, and The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, Finding Nirvana in the Classics. Dean explores the distinction between the art and craft of meditation, what it means to rest in effortlessness, and critiques much meditation practice as egoic aggrandizement and fetishization. Dean discusses the edifying effect of finding religious themes in literature and cinema, and the approach he takes in his books to analyze both the Western canon and the great movies of the past. Dean also recounts stories of his time studying with Nakchang Rinpoche of the Aroter Buddhist group, draws parallels between jazz and enlightenment, and weighs in on the direction of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So without further ado, Dean Slater. Dean Slater, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Steve. Yeah, I'm so delighted to be talking with you again. And actually, something serendipitous came out of our previous interview. We were just uh, briefly discussing it before uh, we started recording. Um, you mentioned last time that uh, after leaving TM, you've spent time with various different teachers. And one of the teachers you mentioned having spent some time with was Nakchang Rinpoche of mm -hmm. the Aroter. And viewers and listeners of this podcast will likely be aware that I've interviewed Nakchang Rinpoche and his wife and teaching partner, Kendra Dechen, on a number of occasions on this podcast, including, and I sent this to you, a three-hour video episode in which I traveled to their home in Wales and interviewed them there in depth about their life and history. So I'm curious if you might uh, tell the story of your intersection with Nakchang Rinpoche. Oh, well, Nakchang Rinpoche and, and his wife and teaching partner, Kondro Dechen, they were they were really my first Buddhist teachers. And um, uh, it, it's interesting because, you know, he, he was kind of the main teacher for me and my, my late first wife, Maggie, uh, for a few years, really only a couple of years. But, um, you know, he, it's so interesting how in my own teaching, I keep finding myself uh, referring to him, quoting him, and and my other teachers as well. Uh, he had a real impact on my life, and and uh, your viewers who've who've watched that, especially that um, tour uh, interview of the house in Wales, know that they're just just fantastic characters uh, as as well as teachers. They in in those days they used to describe themselves as a as a couple of harmless English eccentrics. <laughs> And uh, so we got back in touch, um, uh, thanks to you, and, and had a lovely email exchange. And he said they now call themselves uh, what the, the vivacious vicars of Adriana. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he, at one point, actually, um, because he would occasionally come to New York and give teachings there, and he had a, a small group of of disciples or apprentices there and you know he prefers he he made it very clear early on he did not want a lot of students he just he wanted a few serious students um, but Maggie and I started attending his teachings and then he wanted to hold a weekend retreat and um, we had a a nice big Victorian house in New Jersey at the time so we wound up having the retreat at our 
home. And it was great for the whole weekend we had, I don't know, maybe a dozen people there, you know, sleeping on every couch. And I remember one person sacked out under the dining room table. And uh, to have the two of them there teaching in our home was was lovely. And we had the chanting. Um, Kondro Dechen had her, brought her cello, uh, uh, which was used to accompany some of our, our chanting or yogic singing, as they prefer to call it. Um, and it was it was just lovely. Ultimately, Maggie and I decided. I mean, we realized that um, uh, to be the kind of you know to make the kind of serious um, commitment that uh, that they really wanted from their serious students, um, which which re, you know involves wearing the robes and doing a lot of of ritual and so forth. That that was that was not in our DNA, and and so uh, so we moved on. But I've just always had a very warm place in my heart for them. And and in fact, at the end after the retreat, at the end of the retreat. Um, one interesting th thing that happened because Maggie had a number of very um, powerful uh, dream vision experiences connected with Tibet that started before we knew anything about Buddhism, um, that where she would like um, see some ritual object in her dream, and then we would look it up and say, oh, that's called a purba. You know, and that's the ritual dagger for keeping the demons in place. And and she would see these rituals and, and things that all, you know, seemed to point pretty clearly to some Tibetan connection on, on her part. And um, she, at the retreat, we had a little little two-on-two -two audience with Nakchang um, uh, Rinpoche and Kondro Dechen, and she told him about this one particular very powerful dream and she asked him if he could e e explain it and he said well we would have to be we would have to have this conversation in the dream state for me to talk meaningfully about it you can't talk meaningfully about anything in the in the dream reality from the point of view of the waking reality and then at the end of the retreat, he presented us with a beautiful, you've seen his calligraphy. He does these beautiful uh, big calligraphies of the, um, uh, the, the Tibetan mantras. And he gave us a beautiful hum, which we, we had put in a gold frame and, and hung over our, our mantle then for, for the rest of our time in New Jersey. One of my favorite stories of his, um, actually, he was talking about doing the calligraphies. And um, what he would do is, if he wanted to do, let's you know, an ah or a hung or something, is he would have a bunch of, let's say, I don't know how many, let's say 99 pieces of just inexpensive, you know, throwaway scrap paper, and then one really nice piece of paper. And he would do practice versions of the hung 99 times on the bad paper and throw them away and then leave the good piece of paper on his his work desk there with the brush still wet in the ink and put that aside and then go back he said to doing housework or writing or something and wait until the next time someone called on the phone or rang at the door 
So on his way to answer the phone or answer the door, he would just quickly pick up the brush and go and do the final one and move on. And to me, that says so much about the, um, the process of artistic creation or any kind of creation that, that <clears throat> I mean, such an ingenious way to find the, the living edge of um, uh, uh, practice, craft on the one hand, and freshness, spontaneity on the other hand. He would say form and emptiness. So I've in my, in my own writing and you know playing music and so forth that's been very helpful to me always okay find some way to 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 be on that edge. Hmm. Do you have similar ways? I, I as a, in in my writing I mean I'm a compulsive rewriter. I just I just write everything over and over and and over again and and then I come back to it. But the main thing is I is I'll I I'll, I'll work on a thing for a while and just keep ironing out this paragraph, this page, this chapter over and over. And then I have to walk away from it. And then I come back and I go, "Oh no, 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 no." <laughs> you know, get a fresh view and 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 just kind of shake it out. It's it's more subtle for me. It's a little more it's kind of I I feel like, you know, having once you sort of know what that edge feels like between form and emptiness, between between craft and freshness, spontaneity, you, it be as in meditation, for example, it's just, okay, you know where that place is, and the, you need fewer formal tricks to get back to it. It becomes hopefully more and more just the place that you're, you're, you're living from. But Another thing that was said to another important teacher in my life was the the jazz director at the the school where I used to teach um, uh, a wonderful uh, jazz trumpeter named Sean McAnally and I used to sit in with the band playing the saxophone not very well and I asked uh, Sean one day okay tell me about improvising what's the secret of improvising and he said well you think of something and then don't play that Right. And I said, right, that's it. Because the mo and, and you, you could hear and it was help. You know, you learn a lot in Dharma and in the arts and everything. You can learn a lot. Sometimes your best teachers are the, the bad examples, the counter examples. So you'd hear these young, you know, beginning high school uh, hope wannabe jazzers when it's time for them to improvise and you can hear them thinking. You can hear, yeah, now go to this, now go here, now go here. But to say, okay, think of something, then don't play that. The moment you think of it, it's kind of already dead. Like that's a form and it's limited. That's this little area here. This whole area uh, outside of everything that you didn't think, that's the emptiness, that's boundless. And you have to be ready to go into, into free fall into that space. Of course, jazz has a lot of vocabulary. Of course, it has technique. But it yes. also has a very particular vocabulary, figures and phrases and so on, that one really has to internalize. One of the yes. great jazz, the, one of the great jazz learning methods is to transcribe and memorize and shadow the uh, so great solos of 
whoever it might be, you know, right, across, right. across instruments too, actually important. Right. So. Char Char Charlie Parker infamously, when he was, was uh, you know, as a teenager, um, he would drive the neighbors crazy because he played scales for hours and hours and hours a day. Um, and that's because you have to do that until, as you say, you internalize it. And he said, um, yeah, you, he said something along the lines of you, you work and work and work at your instrument so that then you just play. And, you know, that word play uh, has such an interesting double meaning, you know, double at least. Uh, you're playing the instrument, but it's play as opposed to work then. You know, when children play, it's there's the spontaneity they're not they're not working at it they're not thinking about it they're just they're they're just playing which i think that when when jesus says in the gospels to enter into the kingdom of heaven be like a little child i think that's at least part of what he's talking about of getting to that spirit of play but but to do it in the arts there's a lot of work you have to do and then forget about to get there I wonder if that's the case for meditation, and if so, what would you do? You think that, th that there are there are core skills or traits or vocabularies that one needs to learn or could learn? Of course, the thing about music is you don't need to learn the jazz vocabulary to improvise. But if you want to be a jazz player, you yes, do yes. need that vocabulary, and there may be different sorts of meditators too. Wes Montgomery, of course, famously was right. his first gigs were were playing note for note charlie christian songs and then right. george benson's first first gigs were playing note for note doing wes montgomery impressions basically in his in his early days so there is a sort right. of lineage there that right. reminds me a bit of maybe i'm stretching it too much because i'm a guitar player and a meditator so may, maybe my own biases are here but um i think it's so fascinating but anyway um what do, what do you think it, I, by, by the way i read a quote once from I think it was Charlie Parker's widow or, or one of his widows uh, was was complaining about the, the, the young saxophone players who would learn from the, the, the transcriptions of Bird's solos. And she said, and they would learn them, including all his mistakes. Yeah. So, so, so that, that is a, has a very interesting analog in the Dharma world. You know, if, you're, if your approach is to completely ape the the um uh the teacher uh then you've got a baby and bathwater problem are you just learning the dharma essence are you learning the the qualities of enlightened practice from your teacher uh and but are you meanwhile com successfully separating them from just learning his or her personality quirks, uh, some of which may be, you know, very unhelpful in your life, may be very unhelpful in the teacher's life. Enlightened people are still people. They're still people. Uh, yeah. they're, they, and that, that means they've got, they've got characteristics, they've got attributes, and they're not uh, necessarily uh, uh, transferable in a helpful way into your own life. You know, I'm wondering about, about to come back to this, the, this idea of meditation and, and music, that, that, that link there, or, or this spontaneity in craft, mm -hmm. um, or rehearsal and improvisation. 
Oh, oh, you know what? Yeah, this was your your presenting question a couple minutes ago, which is important. Um, which was okay? Is meditation like playing jazz a situation where you have to go through the work, and then you get to, to the play? And the the answer, and I feel very very strongly about this, based on years of my own practice experience and teaching experience, the answer is a resounding no. No, no, no. Um, and, and I know there's a lot of tradition that, okay, you've got to, you know, you sit there in the zendo and you, you, just, you, you just really, you know, bash your brains against your koan or, or whatever it is. And then finally, after years of practice, you get to shikantaza. You get to just sitting. It, you, you, you break through the effort into the effortlessness. Now, I knew two things about myself very early on in, in my career with this stuff. The one is that I really wanted it. I wanted to be seriously on the enlightenment path. And the other was I knew I didn't have, that my body was too fidgety and my mind was too thinky to do. I, I actually started off as a Zen student. I lasted about three days. I flunked Zen. Uh, and I found teachers starting with Maharishi, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the, the founder of, of Transcendental Meditation, who said and showed me that, no, rather than sit for an hour or sit for 10 years bashing your head against effort and finally breaking through to effortlessness, we can skip that first part. With a little bit of skillfulness and delicacy and precision of instruction, we can get people right into effortlessness. And, and, and I mean, and, and I know that uh, based on a lot of teaching and a lot of practice. You can get people straight to effortlessness. And, and there's a whole lot of heroics that people go through about, you know, okay, how much I'm sitting. And I'm, but who, who, is, who is engaging in that heroic struggle? That's the ego. Um, and and um, uh, it's not necessary. And the thing is, if we're serious not only about practicing in our own life, but but um, spreading Dharma practice in, in the world, you know, the reality is in the modern world, people are not going to do that. Most people are not going to dedicate themselves to hours and hours of sitting. So the good news is they don't have to. Can you say more about that? How, how, how can you uh, induce that effortlessness through, through a skillful or delicate means? Um, yeah, the best answer to that would be, um, you know, go to my YouTube channel where I've got a bunch of, of guided meditation sessions archived, uh, rather than me talking about it. Um, and it's, it's, but essentially it's pointing out, S Steve, are you aware right now? Yeah. And, uh, what color is your awareness? Does it have a color? Don't no, think, look. Exactly. Don't think, look. Does it have a color? No. No. Um, does it have a pitch? No. Okay, so it's silent, it's invisible. Uh, does it have a texture? No. Okay. Does it have any edges? Not that I can detect. Yeah, right. And if you detect if you do detect something that uh, that is some edge or some color or some pitch, um, uh, those are things you're aware of. They're not the awareness. 
right? So this awareness is in silent, it's invisible, it's, it's boundless, not meaning big, great, big, big, which people, it's a source of confusion for people. It's, it means it has nothing to do with big or small. And yet very clearly you're, you're, you're noting that right now as, as something you're looking at, not with the eyes, but you're experiencing and not just thinking about it, okay? Rest in that. And when you find your, and as you continue to rest in that, or, or more precisely notice that you've always been resting in it, uh, thoughts are going on, feelings are passing, you know, at a certain point, your butt is getting tired of sitting in the chair and all that. And notice how all that happens uh, uh, very peacefully coexisting with the apprehension of this silent, invisible awareness. So there's nothing to do about the thoughts and the feelings. Now, at some point, at several points, you'll probably find that the mind gets caught up with some string of passing thoughts or some feelings or something, which is just different from them passing along with the, the awareness of the awareness, but we get caught up. Uh, at the moment that you get caught up, the, the getting caught up, while you're caught up, you can't do anything about it because you don't realize you're caught up because you're caught up. When you realize that you have been caught up, then this is the, the one crucial place where there's some particular um, uh, technique involved. Don't try to push the thing away. Don't try to assure that this doesn't happen again, which you have no control over. But don't even let go. I used to say let go, but people, I, I realize that when people hear let go, they think, well, the thing is supposed to go away. And they say, I'm trying to let go and I can't. No, 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 no. So forget about letting go. Relax your grip on the thing. Relax your grip. And notice that once, when you relax your grip, it's not relax your grip and come back to resting in awareness of awareness. It's because that happens automatically. Because every moment of our life, we are like the, the irresistible force of gravity. We're always being drawn, like bees being drawn to the, to the nectar. We're always being drawn to our own nature, this boundlessness, this, this problemlessness, right? This blown outness, this nirvana, this kingdom of heaven within. We're being drawn to it all the time. Any effort that we try to make to help it uh, it, it simply complicates matters. Any effort to create a non-agitated state of mind is itself a form of agitation. So all there is to it, when you realize you're caught up, relax your grip, rest in this awareness. Done and dusted. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Dean. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And, what do and, you... and, and eyes closed, eyes open, all optional. What do you think about, and that's just so wonderful what you said there, what do you think of the meditation approaches that involve a more structure, effort and doing, uh, for example, or effort, I suppose, uh, rather than effortlessness? Mm -hmm. For example, just to throw a couple of examples out there, things like um, 
Vipassana, the sort of thing done in um, Spirit Rock, for example, or something mm-hmm. like that, or sort of noting things, etc. Or uh, concentration meditations where one aims for highly concentrated states. And in fact, some people say, as, as you're well aware, that it's skillful to obtain a highly concentrated mind, wieldy, as they sometimes say, impliant. <laughs> so then one can direct it to inquiry into the nature of experience, etc., etc., this sort of thing. Or um, I suppose even mantra. Uh, meditation mm-hmm. of, a, of, of particular kinds, where one is engaging in, in a mantra meditation to aim for a certain state or to, to bring about some sort of result or breath holding or the sort of thing, visualizations mm-hmm. of deities and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these are all, I'm just throwing a whole bunch of them out now. I'm right. not suggesting you comment on each one, but what right. do you think if, if that's not what you're talking about? So if that's not mm-hmm. what you're talking about, what is it that they're doing? Yeah. Um... So some of those things, most of those things, I'm not qualified to make any deep comment on because I've never really been a, a student of them. Um, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say this. I, I, the, a, a phrase that I've found to be very helpful to me in my practice and in my teaching is on-ramp. Although I, I've, I've learned, I, I actually, in a conversation with Rupert Spira, I found out that in the, in the UK, you don't say on-ramp. I think you say slip road. Um, so, so at least here in the US, when you're going to get on a freeway, an interstate, an expressway, whatever you call that there, um, there's, a, there's a, tra- a little transitional ramp or road for getting from the surface roads that have stoplights and cross traffic and all that to the one where you just keep going. Um, so any of those activities, um, putting the, resting your gaze on one object, singing mantra. I love singing mantra. I sing mantra every day. Uh, I sing mantra in the, in the shower and, um, and sing mantra to my, you know, some of my graven images there. Uh, uh, I, I love it. And it's when we've been running around in the world doing you know, 10,000 things, and then to suddenly, now I'm going to sit and essentially do no thing, do nothing, that's a very abrupt transition. So usually it seems to work better to go from 10,000 things to one thing to zero things. So that's the on-ramp or the slip road. And um, I, in, when I lead sessions, I deliberately vary the on-ramp. You know, because depending on where you are, you use this on-ramp here or this on-ramp here, this on-ramp here, they all lead to the same, um, you know, the the point is to get to the express lane as soon as possible. In some places in the States here, by the way, when you get in the express lane, they have, it's marked with the diamonds. You're in the diamond lane, which is great from the, you know, that's the, the Vajra lane. Um, so, um, you know, when I lead a session, sometimes we'll, we'll start with, with mantra. My favorite mantras are the ones that are culture neutral, that are natural, that people all over the world say. Like my two, like, ah, that's a great mantra. That's natural. Um, uh, oh, 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 another one that I love is, wee. You know, <laughs> I'll sometimes in a workshop have people, you know, with total exuberant abandon, 
you know, and I required them. There's, there's, here's, there's a mudra as well as the mantra. You have to throw out your arms and look like an idiot and say, wee. You do that three times and then try to be depressed. You know, so, and you can't do it. So if you're, and, and by the way, that has its roots or its analog in stuff I learned from Nakchung Rinpoche how the different mantras um because they you know the stuff up on the on the the right end of the of the keyboard is when you're kind of mired in dark places it's good to right hit the highs when you're running around in a lot of high frequency stuff it's good to get down on the left end of the keyboard so all of this stuff is is fine. The, the where it becomes problematic is when people wind up spending their lives on the on ramp. Where 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 they fetishize the on ramp activities, um, and 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 I think that happens a lot. It's very easy uh, and very understandable. Oh, here's these beautiful mantras. Here's these lovely robes right and and to just fall in love with that stuff and forget that that's that's a means to an end and that that you want to get on the on-ramp you know we and get off it as soon as possible so i'll we'll do you know we'll do i do breathing stuff and so forth but usually a couple of minutes and and if if a person if any any time you're in a place where you can just recognize oh i'm aware this awareness has no attributes. I can rest here. Do that. I, I mean, that's, that's what makes sense to me. I, 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 I don't understand why one would spend a lot of time, you know, with the foreplay when, when you can get there. And people, you, you teach weekly meditation classes that are free, right? Uh, can you... uh, yeah, usually three times a week. I'm on Zoom. Um, and, and Fridays, in fact, after this, I've got a, a session. Friday sessions are at 1030 Pacific, which is something in the afternoon or early evening uh, uh, where you are. So I've got some people who tune in from Europe and South America and Morocco. Yeah, that's 6.30 p.m. in the UK, 7.30 p.m. in Europe. That's good timing. So people can um, to tune into that and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, follow those meditations. That's, that's amazing. I'm curious about uh, if there are, if you want near enemies or close facsimiles of the thing that you're describing. So I might be thinking I'm doing what you were leading me to or pointing me to, but I'm mm -hmm. actually doing something else. And not knowing that, I think I've got it, and maybe I haven't quite got it. Do such things exist? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a useful phrase that, that my, my old teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, used to use. He said what he called mood making, people making a mood of enlightenment, you know, walking around with a, just a kind of a, um, I think we talked a little bit about this last time, with a, this, this sort of constructed, emotional i mean you know a lot of people do this in church <laughs> uh, uh th this kind of um emotional uh artifice and maybe we talk very softly and we're very careful about how we light our incense and so forth uh so you know, that's kind of one way to to create a a a, a facsimile of of enlightenment um you know and an, and another is um 
intellectually. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of, you know, uh, I think a lot of people who, <clears throat> um, you see this a lot in among some of the people who follow uh, Western non-dualism. I don't like that label very much. There's nothing really Western about it, except that it's, it's, it, it does not have the Eastern cultural and historical baggage. Uh, but um, I think that there, um, because you're not crashing the symbols together and so forth to, to shock your, yourself out of uh, thinking, uh, a lot of people who are in the Western non-dual tradition may spend a lot of time thinking and going down intellectual rabbit holes and convincing themselves uh, that, uh, okay, this is abiding in, in the non-dual when it's, you know, a, playing with thoughts about the non-dual. <clears throat> you know, the, in the, um, particularly coming out of the, um, uh, well, as in the Bhagavad Gita, where, where there's the articulation of the, of the different paths, you know, the bhakti yoga, the, you know, the, there's the um, yoga of devotion and the jnana yoga, the, the path of the intellect and, and so forth. And usually the understanding of that is, well, depending on what your predilections are, like if you're stronger in the intellect, you follow jnana yoga. If you you're, have a naturally devotional nature, you follow bhakti yoga. Uh, and, and I can see that, um, uh, but I, to a certain extent, I, I sometimes feel uh, uh, that it makes more sense to do the opposite. If you're an intellectual, you may need to just, you know, plunge into devotion to just, uh, you know, stuff that makes your heart burst open and, and, and you know, to, to tell the intellect to shut up uh, and, and, and so forth. So to do something counter to what your relative structure wants. Don't give it the cookie that it wants. Yeah. Very interesting. I, I'd like to read something from Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. Ah, I've heard that's a good book. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Available at all good bookstores. I learned that spontaneous openings are not just odd neurological blips. They've been recognized through the ages as glimpses of the beingness that is the essence of all beings, just as colorless light is the essence of all colors. And I learned that there are methods, skillful means, for going beyond teasing glimpses. The simplest method is meditation, which turns out to be surprisingly easy if you take it easy, letting it pull you rather than pushing. 15-year-olds can do it, as I found out, by slipping it into the curriculum. There you're talking about your um, teaching mm -hmm. at, the, at the schools. The sages taught, and I've gradually confirmed, what happens if we keep opening to the light of being, washing our lives in it day by day. We can deal gracefully with all life's noise and busyness on the outside, while on the inside, we are as silent and crystal clear as an empty mirror. I had, in short, stumbled onto the Dharma, the path of awakening, and then just stayed on the path. It never occurred to me to do otherwise. So I'm very curious about these spontaneous openings. Mm -hmm. How do they occur? What do they have to do with enlightenment, as, as you've, you've used that word? Yeah, and uh, what are the skillful means for, as you put it, going beyond these teasing glimpses? 
Yeah, well, we've been talking about the skillful means for the, you know, the, the, the most skillful means that, as far as I can see, are, are anytime you realize you can, ju- you can just hang out in awareness of awareness or awareness of silent beingness or awareness of the, the I, which is not the body or, or the mind or the ego, but, but, but the, the, the awareness within which all experiences come and go. Anytime you can hang out in that, hang out in that. And then, um, and then when, when, you, when you feel you need something to shake things up, I don't know, sing some mantras or, 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 or do some breathing or, or, you know, move your body around something and then, oh yeah, shake things up and settle back into that. Uh, (laughs) But, but as far as the spontaneous openings, how do they happen? They happen spontaneously. There, there's not a lot that can be said about that. Uh, I mean, as you know, that what you just read there from my book, that's, that's following on my story of my first very, really clear um, kind of um, uh, a Kensho experience, my first glimpse of, of boundlessness, which was triggered by um, uh, seeing the, the cover of a mad magazine with a picture of, of, of idiot Alfred E. Newman and his motto, What Me Worry. And I realized that even at the age of 11 or 12 when this happened, my mind had been caught up in all this anxious chatter, which was worry, that that engine had been racing because it was my foot on the accelerator. And having noted that, I was able to take my foot off the accelerator and everything went deliciously, boundlessly silent. Now, does that mean everyone should rush to find, you know, get a copy of Mad Magazine and look at Alfred E. Newman and then that'll happen? Um, Probably not. But in a sense, that would be the history of religion in a nutshell. (laughs) <laughs> you know let me fire a couple of uh how it works uh, models at you and see if you can nuance them or respond mm-hmm. to them so enlightenment is an accident and practice makes you accident prone richard baker roshi there we go richard baker roshi mm-hmm. and another one is uh you've got to sit there and practice and do your your uh, investigations let's say you're mm-hmm. in, in pastness keep observing keep observing uh, until eventually you will see uh, there'll be a tipping point of seeing impermanence or emptiness or uh, something like that or even suffering um, enough that you will mm-hmm. enter through one of the three doors you'll have an experience and everything will be changed and different so sort of practice mm-hmm. practice practice until you can pop through to the other side of mm-hmm. stream entry or kensho or whatever the case may be so these are kind of um, slightly contrasting, perhaps, uh, models, or maybe not. Uh, so I'm curious. I, I, I don't think they're contrasting. I don't. I don't. I, I. I don't see any difference between the two. I think they're just two different ways of saying the same thing. Um, but except that when you say practice, 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 um, the subtext that can seem implied there is practice with effort. And. Um, my look bottom line what's the best practice i mean really it's kind of what you're asking what's the best way to practice the best way to practice is the one that you will do and if you need you know actually this is going back again to our days with nutjung rinpoche we were on a workshop with him maggie and i 
um, in one weekend in New York, and we were doing the thing. I forget what it's called. It's you, 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 you um, take yarn with five different colors that stand for the five, um, you know, w w uh, uh, elements, the five w wisdom emotions, and depending on who you are, somehow you find the balance of how much of each color and you're weaving this thing that I forget what it's called. Maybe you know the Tibetan name. In, in the Western world, they have something like that. They call it a God's eye that was very popular in the, in the hippie days. Um, and so we were doing that and we're chanting mantras. And, and at one point, Maggie asked, not Chung Rinpoche, well, what, what's the point of doing all this? And he said, the point is when you're doing this, you're not doing something else. <laughs> you know, so, which I understand. Okay, it's like it gets you off the street, right? In, 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 a, in a sense, it's just we give you something to do that's not your usual busyness, that's maybe some different kind of busyness that you'll be less caught up in that then becomes a transitional thing into getting away from from being busy and you know and just being being but anyway what i again the best practice is the one you'll do what i found what i will do is i will i will sit with effortlessness and um uh And I've found that, you know, the people that come and, and learn with me, uh, that it, it works for them. I've, I've had, God, I had, I mean, right in this, this room here where, where we, before COVID, we used to actually have, have meetings in, in person. And we had this one girl in her maybe late teens who came a few times and she was very quiet, didn't say anything in the discussions. But then after the one after coming three or four times was at the end of the evening she was about to go out the door and she pulled me aside she said um i i just want to let you know that i'm a heroin addict i've been clean for six months in the meditation tonight i felt the way i never thought i would be able to feel in this lifetime without drugs thank you so, you know, you hear enough things like this, or I hear from, there's a, there's a lovely woman who, who attends most of my Zoom sessions, um, who uh, her husband uh, 15, 20 years ago had some devastating strokes, and she is just, she's a real kind of free spirit, lovely singing, dancing kind of person, but her life has just been caretaking for him wall to wall, seven days a week for years now. And every once in a while, you know, she reminds me, she says, this is the stuff that's saved my life. This is the stuff that's made it okay, made it possible for me to do that without losing my mind. So, you know, so, and it can very well be that, um, I forget what one of my teachers explained this. It was very helpful to me, which, which was um, because I used to think of it in terms of, okay, what is the ultimate practice? What is the right way to do? Which kind of, in a way, your questions have been getting at that. And, and one of my, my teachers finally explained to me, no, you have to teach the thing that is 
natural for you that works for you and the students for whom that's going to be right will gravitate to you. So people who need to do a lot of costumery and a lot of ritual and so forth, they'll gravitate to people like Nakshang Rinpoche. God bless. Fascinating. I, I would like to talk about Cinema Nirvana, the, your book yes. you wrote about uh, about that, but it's been really fun to sort of run run these paradigms through your your experience. It's really excellent. Perhaps I'll perhaps I'll do one one more question like that, and then we can talk mm -hmm. about Cinema Nirvana. Does that practice progress in the sense of is it something that tips over into some sort of watershed experience? Is that a thing? Is that a necessary thing? Are there any other signs or waypoints of the unfolding or, or progressing or blossoming of that kind of an orientation of practice? Perhaps that's totally the wrong way to think about it, in which case, please address that view. Well, yeah, well, I, no, I think it's a, it's a very good question. It's an important question to ask because people so much think of things in those terms. You know, we read the stories. We read the story of, of Ramana Maharshi as a 16-year-old boy who starts thinking about death one day and goes into this thing where he thinks he's dying and he lies, but he has somehow the wisdom to, you know, lie down on his back in Shavasana and the corpse pose rather than fighting it and saying, okay, if, if I'm going to die, okay, there goes the body, there go the senses, there go the object, the senses, there goes everything. He lets everything go away. And after everything's gone away, he's not dead, he's awakened, you know, and then he goes off and he moves to a cave and sits there for seven years. So we read stories like this, where there is, like you say, a watershed event that's very clear, that's very uh, cinematic, um, that's very sexy. Uh, and, and these are, they're great stories and they're, they're important stories because they're inspiring. But they're also, in a sense, dangerous stories because they make us think, oh, it has to happen that way. And I'm pretty sure for most people, it does not happen that way. It, it happens more, as one of my teachers said, most of us are on the slow cook plan. It's not a sudden flashy boiling over. And if you keep looking for something like that, especially while you're sitting there meditating, oh, am I here, all right? Then, then that destroys the very innocence, which is the, the basis, you know, is, 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 is resting in beginner's mind, is being like a little child to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Um, you know, when, when people say to me, gee, I've been doing this practice for, you know, six months or three years or 10 years or whatever. And, and I'm not sure, you know, I haven't had a flashy experience. I'm not sure what's, if anything's really happening. And what I say is, okay, go to a diner by yourself. And they have diners, they call them diners in the UK. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So I say, okay, go to a diner by yourself, um, sit in a booth, order a, a slice of pie and a, and a, cup of coffee and eavesdrop on the conversations around you, right? And then you'll see what your practice has done. You'll hear, you hear what other people are talking about and how they talk about it and how engaged they are in it and how the stuff they're talking about has its, it, it, you know, both the thrills and the spills, but how it has its claws in them, how deep into them it goes. 
and you see the different and you go, oh yeah, that's what I was like six months ago or three years ago or 10, 10 years ago. Do you realize, you know, that's one of the reasons that I love teaching. Maharishi used to say, he said this over and over, he said, the teacher always gets more than the student. You know, being in the position of talking about this stuff and, and, and leading practice gives me uh, uh, an appreciation to become aware, aware of my awareness of awareness, <laughs> as it were, right? To go, uh, uh, yeah, things are, 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 because so much of it is not, oh, this new experience comes along, but, but that the, the stuff that falls away, you know? I mean, if you've, if I mean, you're pretty young. I don't know if you've, you've, you've had the, 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 um, the privilege yet of having, you know, chronic, pain, medically painful situations that then go away. You know, when you've got a toothache, all you can think about, oh my God, if only I could get rid of this toothache, I'd be so happy. Everything would be fine. And then you go to the dentist, da, 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 you get rid of the toothache, and then you forget about it in five minutes. So, uh, so a lot of it is, is, is what goes away. But then you look and you go, oh yeah, I used to do a lot of banging my head against stuff. There, there's a certain quality of, a certain quality of the life experience that's just, you know, the classical word for it is dukkha, but you know, it's just like, it's like a pebble in your shoe. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's like, it's like sand in your bathing suit and, 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 and the absence of it is sometimes, you know, it's useful to have that pointed out to you and go, oh yeah, nice, nice. But the, but you know, in, in, in my book, um, the Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, and I do a, a chapter on, on Emily Dickinson, and one of my very favorite things from Emily Dickinson is where she says, not revelation tis that waits, but our unfurnished eyes. There, there's, there's, the, there's your answer, Steve. Not revelation tis. We think there's some other experience that I need to have some other experience I need to have, um, some new, some thing that I'm not aware of that I'm going to become aware of, some revelation, right? But it turns out, no, it's the unfurnished eyes. It's not something I'm gonna become aware of, it's the awareness itself, this very awareness which is here right now. And, and I think if there's a watershed that has to happen for everyone, it's not the oh yeah here's this it's the it's the duh it's the it's the it's the, how did I how did I not realize it's this awareness I've had all along. It has no boundaries. It has no problems, and it has no and there's no distance between the I between I and it. I am it. Tag you're it. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Marvelous. Can you say that Emily Dickinson quote one more time? Yes. Not revelation tis that waits, but our unfurnished eyes. Mm -hmm. there, there, there you've got in those two little lines, pure, perfect, 100% lucid, non-dual teaching 
from a, a woman who, you know, never sat with any, any Vajra, who, you know, spent her life uh, working in her garden, cooking, baking in the kitchen, and sitting in her, her second floor bedroom under her parents' house in Main Street in Amherst, Massachusetts. But she just saw that, you know, seeing is seeing. And in Dharma Guide to Western Literature, you say, and I'm quoting you here, in time, I began to see the connection between this awakening and the books and poems I loved, between the silence and the words. Mm -hmm. And you've also described your approach as looking in places we don't expect to find Dharma and finding it there. Um, right. So I found it first in, you know, on the cover of Mad Magazine. Right. So I'm a literature guy. So I, you know, so I wrote this book. So we find it in Moby Dick and we find it in Macbeth and we find it in Waiting for Godot and we find it in the poetry of of, of uh, Keats and, and Whitman and Dickinson and, and Hopkins. Uh, but that's because I'm a literature guy, you know. If I'd been a geology guy, I would have written a book about finding the Dharma in rocks. And you're a movie guy too, and that's uh, Cinema Nirvana. You have that right. there. That's, yes, I'm a movie guy too, so I wrote this book, Cinema Nirvana, Enlightenment Lessons from the Movies. By the way, I was a little bit trepidate because this cover design was my idea, and I was a little bit trepidatious. Is it okay, is it too irreverent to show the, the Buddha clutching a, a box of popcorn? Uh, it's a statue of a Buddha with popcorn in his, in his lap, uh, right. resting, resting in his mudra. Right. So I, so I checked with a couple of my Buddhist teachers, and they laughed. They said, no, they loved it. So I yeah. said, okay, great. So you've also admitted that you're not necessarily, in all cases, saying that the authors intended those Dharma messages uh, d deliberately. Right. Um, and that to some degree, you're reading those themes into the works, although not in all cases. You, not, you're... not reading. Okay. Well, let me ask the question then. So this yeah. is important. I'm, di I'm discovering it there. Well, that, yeah, that's what I want to know about exactly that distinction. So can you explain then a bit your approach in when you're writing a book like Dharma Guide to Western Literature or a book like Cinema Nirvana, mm -hmm. can you explain your approach and how do you approach that hermeneutical balance between? You know, I, I once, a um, long time ago, I was trying to write um, screenplays for a little while. And I, and I wrote a screenplay that was, was roughly based on, on my own life, my own kind of Bildungsroman, um, Bildungsroman, there we go. <laughs> Ramen would be noodles. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, it was a guy, a, 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 an imperfectly reconstructed hippie who becomes an English teacher at, a, at an East Coast prep school. Um, you know, we, I think we all at a certain point have to get that, that, that autobiographical thing out of the way. And, and there's one scene where, where the teacher character is upstairs in the library photocopying, um, I don't know, some exams for his class or something. And, and suddenly there's a spontaneous moment where he, he sticks his face in the copier machine and then we see rolling out of the, the machine his, his, you know, each, each shot, you know, it's a different expression on his face, making different funny faces. Um, and I, and I had a, a colleague of mine in the English department read the screenplay and he gave me notes. He said, yeah, I, I like this, this I didn't like so much. He said, I loved 
the scene where he's got all the, the different facial expressions rolling out of the copier because it's like that's what he's he's learning. Okay, what faces do you have to put on now to, you know, get out of the, your hippie life and reintegrate into society? And I said, oh, is that what that scene was about? Okay, I'll take that. Right. So, so in that case, so I knew as the creator of the thing that I had no idea what I was creating. And what, what my colleague saw is not necessarily definitive. Nothing's definitive when you're interpreting art, right? Especially if it's great art, you know, it's just depth upon depth upon depth. Um, so some of the, some of the writers in the Dharma Bums Guide to Western Literature, uh, of course, are engaged in spirituality in a conscious, deliberate, overt way. J.D. Salinger, Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, and and you know you got to write about those. And you know it's a great joy to write about um, Henry David Thoreau, who I have a particular, I've always felt very close to him. He's the the first, the founding American Dharma bum. Um, but in a way, it's it's kind of more significant, more fun, finding it in the places that are most unlikely. Maybe this starts for me, the fact, you know, what could be more unlikely than having your your samadhi triggered not by an encounter with a Roshi or a Lama, but an encounter with, with Alfred E. Newman. So I think maybe that inclined me from the beginning to find it in unlikely places. Now, when I wrote Cinema Nirvana, you know, people kept telling me, oh, you have to write about the Matrix and you have to write about... so. I meant I kept a mental list of everything that people told me to write about and made a point not to write about those because if if people could already see it there it was too overt that's the low hanging fruit that's not fun um uh, you know, it, so I wrote about Jaws and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Invasion of the Body Snatchers uh, and, 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 you know, Casablanca had to be the last chapter because it's Casablanca. Um, and, um, you know, kind of my model is the, 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 the wonderful Zen Mondo where the, the student comes to the, the master, to the Roshi, and says, what is the Buddha? Meaning, you know, what is ultimate reality? What is, what is, what is enlightenment? And, and the Roshi could say the Buddha is the beautiful golden temple or the, the, the Buddha is the, the child's tinkling laughter, which would be valid, but not very useful. So the Roshi says the Buddha is a pile of cow shit in the middle of the road. Right? The Buddha, the enlightenment, the, if the infinite is infinite, it's got to be everywhere. But it's most useful to see it in places where you think it can't be in the pile of cow shit. Right? So, so that's, that's useful as practice to see it there because if you can see it there, you see it everywhere. So if I can find the infinite in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, then that's 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 going to be it's 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 a lot more fun because it's a big it's a better challenge but then that's going to be helpful to me and to the reader to start seeing it everywhere yes and it's so fun this this book cinema nirvana because we we know those movies you know we've seen those movies and we and so when you surprise the reader 
with or when I was surprised, you know, the way you'd slice them or the way you'd, uh, you know, point to things. Was, it's cool because I already know the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers anyway, but mm -hmm. I didn't see it that way. So that's kind of fun. You write right. in today's post-literate society. This is from Cinema Nirvana where people can read books which spend most of their time gazing at various kinds of glowing screens instead. Perhaps we can find enlightenment lessons in the movies. And then you say to your point, Coppola and Spielberg are no Pabas and Bavas. But like all great artists in their most inspired moments, they touch places beyond their own understanding. And that's the point you're making here, it seems, that great yes. art surpasses the intentions and um, understanding of, the, of, the, of, the, of the artist, of the artist. I mean, you know, as a guitar player, when you play your best solos, if, if, if someone asks you, well, see, what were you doing there with the chord changes and all that? You're just going to, you're going to, you, you, you know, you say, well, that's when I forgot about chord changes. That's, well, that's I, you don't know many guitar fun. players. I get, I think as a guitar player, I take, I will take as much credit for everything I do, even if it's accidental. <laughs> you see, we're, it's, Catholic, it's guitar players and saxophone players. There's something wrong with us. You're a saxophone player. Well, I'm a, I'm a failed saxophone player. Oh yeah. These yeah. these these these, think... these days I'm a I'm a ukulele player. I could I couldn't master six strings, but but four strings I can just about handle. Yeah. But the, you know, you reminded me. I've got this this quote near the beginning of uh, Cinema Nirvana. Uh, uh, the, the Buddha said this to his disciples shortly before his death, go throughout the land and spread the Dharma in the dialect of the people. And that to me is, is kind of my guiding light, not just in this book, but kind of, you know, what I try in everything I do, spread the Dharma in the dialect of the people, the dialect of the people of, of, of most of the, the people, uh, you know, here where we live is not going to be, um, you know, a lot of Vajrayana ritual. Now, people who are drawn to that, that's great. And I'm drawn to that to a certain extent myself. But just to break it down into in plain English and to do it in terms of where do we live? Where is our attention? Well, it's on movies, it's on television. Um, so, you know, tell, t tell the story that way. Are there any movies, if you were to write volume two, cine, c Cinema no. uh, Nirvana, you know, Strikes Again, Right. Son, um, son of cinnamon nirvana <laughs> exactly uh are there any movies that you'd that you'd you'd include oh sure um uh i i i regretted that in this book i never did a, a chapter on hitchcock uh i would love to do it i would do a chapter my favorite hitchcock film i think is rear window uh i didn't do a chapter on king kong one of my very favorite films, the the original, the first version, 1935, whatever it is, version of King Kong. And, you know, go on, on and on. Uh, one, you know, my wife is a filmmaker. She's a documentary filmmaker. And, and uh, but we both love, um, you know, uh, uh, movies. And, you know, uh, one of our great joys is watching films together and talking about them. Mm -hmm. And... Um, She's turned me on to some wonderful films that I missed. Wings of Desire is incredible. You know, I was asking you about, um, you know, at the end of we're talking about leaving TM and you studied with different people and so on. And I asked you if you if you had a current you know, orientation or a teacher or something like that. And, you know, you mentioned Rupert Spire is, you know, a mm -hmm. reality check for you. But you also said that there's a point when you realized, and now I'm quoting you, we're eventually supposed to grow up. 
we're, we're eventually supposed to become the elders that the people rely on. I, I'm curious about that. I'm also curious about love. Uh, mm -hmm. You've talked about Maggie, you've talked about Yaffa. I'm really interested about that specifically. Mm -hmm. And I'm also interested about teaching. Uh, mm -hmm. You said your favorite grade to teach is 10th grade. And mm -hmm. so that, I'm really interested about that. But I think it would not do any of those subjects justice to talk about them now. So maybe okay. I will say so I must petition you for a triptych, which, you know, the, we'll do a set of three, perhaps if if you're um, if you're willing. Oh, sure. Great. Well, let, let, let me finish with this. So uh, you're probably aware that Martin Scorsese, uh, I think it was 2019. Uh, he was asked in Empire magazine, um, what he thought of the modern movies, the movies of the day, um, in particular, Marvel movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that's, mm -hmm. you know, here. And he said famously that or infamously, perhaps that movies aren't cinema. And this caused a uh, sorry that the Marvel movies aren't cinema, mm -hmm. and this caused a big uh, uh, hoo ha among, <laughs> I suppose yeah. probably a storm in a teacup. But anyway, nonetheless, it was pretty mm -hmm. stormy in that teacup for for about five minutes. And mm -hmm. he wrote this fascinating opinion piece. Have you read it in the New York Times around that time? You know, I did, but I don't remember it well. Can you can you give me yeah. the gist? Yeah, he said that. Um, that he said, I'll quote, quote a couple of bits from that. It was November 2019. Uh, they seem to me to be closer than theme park to theme parks than they are to movies. Um, uh, the movies as I've known and loved them throughout my life. And that in the end, uh, and that in the end, I don't think they're cinema. Uh, and then I'll say a couple of other things here. I'll, I'll quote him further. He says, for me, the filmmakers I came to love and respect from my friends who started making movies around the same time that I did, cinema was about revelation, aesthetic, emotional and spiritual revelation. It was about characters, the complexity of people and their contradictory and sometimes paradoxical natures, the way they can hurt one another and love one another and suddenly come face to face with themselves. It's about confronting the unexpected on the screen and in the life it dramatized and interpreted and enlarging the sense of what was possible in the art form. And he says um, for the, that was the key for us. It was an art form. And about the Marvel films in that piece, he says, there's no revelation, mystery or genuine emotional danger. Nothing is at risk. The pictures are made to satisfy a specific set of demands and they're designed as variations on a finite number of themes. They're sequels in name, but they're remakes in spirit. And everything in them is officially sanctioned because it can't be any other way. That's the nature of modern film franchises, market researched, audience tested, vetted, modified, revetted and remodified until they're ready for consumption. <laughs> mm, yeah. And he also said that they lack something essential to cinema. This is the last quote, the unifying vision of an individual artist, because of course, the, he says, the individual artist is the riskiest factor of all. Um, he talks about how uh, the film industry has become very risk averse. Um, right. You know, so I'm curious, do you agree with Martin Scorsese? Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I find these, you know, these superhero, you know, big screen comic book movies, for the most part, I just find they're just boring. They're just stupid. <laughs> you know, they're, they're stupid because they, they, they deliberately avoid having any kind of in intelligence. They're just, you know, I think, you, see, you know, they're an amusement park ride that the, the appeal is purely somatic 
you know, it's purely, okay, now we're going up this hill on the roller coaster. Now, now we're, we're going down this one. Now, how many times can you do that before it gets worn out? So what you have to do is you keep, have to keep making the, 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 the roller coaster, the, you know, the, the hill that you descend, you have to keep making it higher. Another, if all you've got is intensity, is this kind of somatic intensity, there's nowhere to go except more intensity. And that's just an, that's an unskillful approach in life as well as in art. You know, in, in life, you try to do that. You just, you know, you wind up, it's like how many lines of cocaine can you snort? You know, how, how many... How many people can you have sex with? Uh, and and you just you just need more and more and more, and and eventually that that crashes and and um, you know it's just and and as a matter of fact, coming back to Nakchang Rinpoche once again, one of the most important things I ever heard from him, and I can't remember the complete sentence, but it was just the one phrase from the sentence. And, and the phrase was addiction to intensity. And it's the moment I heard that phrase, I went, oh, of course, this is, that that like broke open for me one of my unexamined assumptions, which was that, that the quest for whatever we're questing for in life is to find the, the, the ultimate intensity. Right, that 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 enlightenment is going to be, and this comes back to what you were saying before, lo looking for watershed experiences. That the that the en that enlightenment is going to be this ultimate orgasm to end all orgasms. You know, it's going to be like peaking on acid while while orgasming. You know, to to the ends of the universe, twenty four seven. And I realized that I had been conceiving of enlightenment that way and looking for some such experience and and all again wasn't even the whole sentence just that phrase addiction to intensity pulled the rug out from under that expectation for me thank god thank you Nakchang Rinpoche yeah this has been another fascinating conversation Dean and uh, I'm pleased that you are willing to come back for a third for to make a triptych where we'll dive into I think themes of uh, growing up love, teaching, all these sorts of things. Um, and no doubt we'll draw from Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, which is your newest release. Dean Slater, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.